Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 2, Spinner's End Many miles away, the chilly mist that had pressed against the Prime Minister's windows drifted over a dirty river that wound between overgrown, rubbish-strewn banks. An immense chimney, a relic of a disused mill, reared up, shadowy and ominous. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Soltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Do you know which city has an airport that has been completely built, but has been like empty for more than a year and people have to go clean it even though it's never used? No. Berlin. Why are they doing that? I don't fully understand. <laughs> but it's like this haunted, never opened, enormous airport in the middle of Berlin. Like right in the middle where the wall used to be, that no man's land. They used it to make a big new airport, but it's never opened. But do you know what else is special about Berlin? Tell me. We have a Harry Potter sacred text group there. Amazing. That's right. It's called the Berlin Borough. And Maggie, our amazing social media and local groups coordinator, once made the mistake of saying it's her favorite named of our groups (laughs) publicly. It's run by Jisoo and has got a wonderful group of people there. And you can visit our website, Harry Potter Sacred Text forward slash groups to find out where and when they meet. So, Vanessa, this week you're telling a story about our theme, which feels very Victorian, of prudence. And I'm going to talk in a Scottish accent the whole time because I am prudent. So I knew that I was very unhappy at my job. One thing, for example, that was frustrating about this job, this is just like the obvious low-hanging fruit, is that every week in my staff meeting, I would say something and my boss would barely acknowledge it. And then my male colleague would repeat it. And my boss would be like, that's a great idea, Steve. And like Steve and I flat out had an open joke about it. Like if I wanted something to be taken seriously in staff meeting, I would text it to Steve during our staff meeting and I would say it. And then I'd be like, can you actually repeat that, please? Because I think it's important. And Steve would then repeat it and it would get taken seriously. Wow. And I was just like, oh, you know, this is frustrating, but at least I have a workaround in the system and whatever. So I went in for my annual staff review, and I really wasn't planning on saying anything, but he did this very invitational and I thought magnanimous thing that I I really took as an olive branch, which was him saying, do you have any feedback for me? And so I told him what I had observed in staff meeting. And he was like, oh, I don't think that happens. And I, of course, thought secretly to myself, well, if Steve said it, you would think it happened. (laughs) But I, you know, I was just like, okay, well, I would like maybe pay attention. And he was like, okay, I'll try. We had staff meeting right after my review. 
And we we were sitting in staff meeting and I said something and my boss didn't register it. And I looked at Steve and Steve repeated it. And my boss was like, oh, that's a really good point. And that is the moment where I should have been like, okay, it's Mm -hmm. time to start looking for a new job. I am not valued and therefore I cannot be valuable. Like I'm not contributing anything. Mm. I'm unhappy. Nothing sort of good is coming from this. And the only thing that kept me there was this sense of prudence, that it was the responsible thing to do. It was a, a healthy salary. And looking back, I ended up leaving that job in a really toxic, like irreparable way. And You know, just looking back on that one staff meeting, like that should have been the canary in the coal mine. That should have been the moment where I was like, it's no longer smart of me to stay here. But because I was telling myself this story of prudence, it felt like prudence in that moment equaled responsible Mm. and that we can't always tell when we're actually being prudent or when we're being risky. And I think we see that immediately in this chapter with Narcissa going to Snape. Is it prudent of her? Is she getting backup for her son by going to Snape? Or is she actually risking everything by going against Voldemort's orders? And I think that often prudence has this double-edged sword where I think I'm, like, sticking it out at, like, a decent job when really I was doing something toxic for everybody. So I'm really interested not in saying, like, when is prudence good and when is it bad, but when is it itself? And when is it simply masquerading? Well, the first thing I want to say, Vanessa, is just ugh, the whole situation. And I I don't blame you for a second. And I really resonate with just the difficulty of knowing what is prudent. Because prudence is all about a combination of wisdom and kind of thriftiness and insight. And I have been in a similar situation where you're in a job where you know, you know it's not right at a relational level, at, at various different levels. But part of you, and this at least this was for me, is you can't see an alternative. It just it feels like the wise thing to do is to stay. I was I, like, I'm being an adult. Exactly. Like, this is what it takes, right? Not everything is fun. Suck it up and be responsible. And in that moment, it felt prudent. And then now when you look back at it, you're like, what was I doing? Actually, I had more options than I realized. And the prudent thing would have been to know to get out. Yep. But the thing is, Vanessa, I think we have to experience it before we know that. Like, I'm never going to make that mistake again, and you as hell aren't either. Maybe there's something about prudence. Can You can only be prudent when you've been through an experience before. Hmm. I don't know. Do you know what would be prudent of you? Is to just move ahead without doing the 30-second recap because I'm going to win anyway? No, that would be patronizing and obnoxious <laughs> of you. No, it would be prudent of you to remind everybody what happened in this week's chapter. Let's do that because it is a fantastic chapter. Of course you love this chapter. It's three divas having it out. (laughs) It is. That is so true. (laughs) I was cheering for each of them. That's what I love about the chapter. I'm like, yeah, Bellatrix, get her. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready for my close up. Okay. On your mark, 
get set, go. Okay, so two hooded figures are walking through this kind of industrial place. And it turns out it's Narciso, Sissy, and Bella, Bellatrix. Um, and Sissy is freaked out because, like, Voldemort has given her son a job and she doesn't think he can do it. And so they go to Snape and she's like, Snape, you have to help him. And Snape's like, but I don't, you shouldn't tell me because Voldemort said no, but I already know the plan. And it's like, does he? But then he does. And um, it's and so he's like, okay, I will make an unbreakable curse. And Bellatrix is like, oh my God, maybe you are trustworthy, but I don't trust you. But okay, I'll help seal the deal. And he promises to help um, Draco do his thing. Everyone who wasn't in the studio, he got so excited in the middle, he did this weird hand snappy thing. I, was, I, forgot, I forgot something and then I came to find it again. <laughs> Vanessa, 30 seconds on the clock. What's the 30-second recap? Here we go. Go. Just a couple things that you missed. Peter Pettigrew is currently living with Snape, which is like a very strange thing. Yeah. Um, Bellatrix quizzes Snape on like, I think you're untrustworthy for the following reasons. Narcissa thinks that Voldemort is only having Draco kill Dumbledore as retribution for the fact that Lucius didn't get the prophecy. Um, Narcissa is obviously really worried about um, her son, and Bellatrix is really worried that Narcissa is betraying Voldemort. And Bellatrix is like, I am Voldemort's number one lover. It's such a good chapter. It is. So, Casper, I want to start big, okay? Let's do it. Yes or no, is Narcissa being prudent or reckless by going to Snape with help my son kill Dumbledore? Okay, well, let's do an inventory. She is going behind Voldemort's back, which of all the things to do with the most powerful wizard in the world, uh -uh, not the smartest choice. Because she is essentially sharing information that's not hers to share. And both Bellatrix and Snape tell her that. Now, it so happens that somehow both of them know it. Rereading it this time, I really thought Snape was playing a game. I thought Snape was saying like, oh, yes, I already know. But and then hoping that she would share details. But it seems from the text that he really does already know. So her imprudence actually kind of pays off because there's nothing that she shares with the two of them that they don't already know. Second reason for being imprudent, which is she's forcing Snape to make a promise, which is not within Voldemort's kind of big plan. And um, so she's interfering with how the pieces of the puzzle in the second war are going to go. On the other hand, she doesn't have any room to be prudent. I mean, she thinks that her son is on a death march, essentially, that he is going to be worked over this year to be humiliated and eventually to fail and be killed. So she's like, throw prudence to the wind. And what's powerful, I think, about that in this book is I had forgotten that the thing that I remember Narcissa for at the end of book seven is the thing she's already doing here at the beginning of book six. She is totally willing to go against Voldemort to protect her son. It made me realize that there's much more consistency in Narcissa rather than this like about face or this quick turn that I always imagined her having at the end of book seven. So to that extent, that also seems to me if not pointing to prudence, at least pointing to consistency. Can I do an inventory of how I think it's prudent? Yes. Though? Okay, help. So the, I think that prudence is based on knowing what it, exactly it is you want and mm. safeguarding that. And the thing she wants is for Draco to be alive. And so I think actually she's been quite prudent. She's not going to Dumbledore and being like, Voldemort has a plan to kill you, and he's wrapping Draco up into it. Let me be a double agent. I can do wigs. I watch the Americans. I'm ready. She could, right? Like, that is true. 
an option on the table. It's been done before. It has been done before successfully, right? So that is quite prudent of her. It's also, she's not playing her cards close to the vest in a way that I find interesting by having Bellatrix come with her. Yes, why do you think Bellatrix came? I mean, I think Bellatrix came out of a sense of loyalty and prudence on Voldemort's behalf. Yeah. She keeps trying to stop Narcissa. Right, she's she's like physically holding her back. Yeah, and she's like, well, I can't stop her without killing her. So what I can do is come. And so I would say that if if the only thing Narcissa actually cares about is Draco's safety, then I think that she's actually being quite prudent, right? Like, she's not going straight to the ministry. Like, she could really mess things up. She has enough information that she could flip. And she's not flipping. She is just trying to protect her kid. And so it's risky in that if it gets back to Voldemort, but it actually doesn't get back to Voldemort, right? She stays close to him till the very end. They set up House at Malfoy Manor. It seems effective to me. Snape kills Dumbledore for Draco. She gets this promise out of him. She gets a sense of security and it never gets back to Voldemort. This plan works perfectly. You're so right. Of all the players in this game, Narcissa actually plays it masterfully. She gets everything that she wants. The thing that's interesting to me is how absent Lucius is in this whole narrative. He would be the obvious kind of fourth character in this in this drama. And, you know, she mentions him a couple of times, like she asks Bellatrix, like, don't, you know, don't put this on Lucius. And she says, you know, Drake is only in this position because Voldemort wants revenge on Lucius. But her orientation seems completely around Draco. I, I was surprised at his absence in this whole narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it is sad how clear it is that she only has one thing in the whole world that she cares about. Thank you. That's exactly, yes, that's exactly right. But I also think that if you're a parent, your kid at the end of the day is the only thing you care about. And you, right, like I think one of the things that is hard for new parents is realizing that in their relationship, Mm. they are no longer the most important people to each other, that the child becomes the most important. Yeah. Maybe what's sad is that for Lucius. I don't think Draco is the most important thing, and that's also sad for Draco. Yeah. This is one of the interesting things about Draco and Harry that make them exactly the same, is they both have mothers who are willing to risk everything for them. Right. And I think the big difference between Harry and Draco, or one of the many big differences, is the relationships with their fathers, which is that James also sacrifices everything for Harry, whereas Lucius will not sacrifice for Draco. Yeah, at all. So when we think about that theme of prudence, how it applies to the other characters in this scene, I'm always amazed to see how quickly Snape is willing to make this unbreakable vow. And it clearly is completely surprising to Bellatrix. And Narcissa also is pleasantly surprised. Do you think at this point, Dumbledore and Snape have already had a conversation? Yes, I do. I think the fact that Snape knows about this arrangement that Voldemort has given this order to Draco to kill Dumbledore... And we know that Snape is actually the good guy, double agent. He immediately went to Dumbledore. And Dumbledore was like, okay, I have to die, right? What's so interesting, therefore, is that he also shares Narcissa's assessment of Draco's capacity, that he doesn't think that Draco can fulfill this task, which, I don't know, it it, it shouldn't be heartbreaking, <laughs> but it kind of is. I, I just feel for Draco so much. And you don't think it's hopeful that Snape is like, I don't think Draco is a killer. Oh, maybe it's like that. Yeah. Well, that would be a nicer reading. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, he's like, this child is incompetent and I only inflate his grades because of who his parents are. <laughs> First of all, 
Voldemort is asking Draco to go up against the greatest wizard of their right. age. So it's like super not a fair fight right. that Voldemort, like Voldemort could not kill Dumbledore. They just had a battle like three chapters ago and Voldemort lost. And Voldemort's like, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send the 16-year-old kid whose dad I'm mad at in for me instead. So there's like that aspect of it. But I also wonder if it's just like at the end of the day, we don't think that Draco wants to be a murderer. So what really reveals the ultimate imprudence for me in what you've just said is that it's Voldemort who's making bad decisions here. He is, he is by orchestrating the 16-year-old's kind of mission, has turned his own side against one another in a way that is going to serve Dumbledore. And he has created discord between two sisters. He's created discord between Lucius and, and Narcissa, potentially. Right, like this is bad leadership, I had a different reading on that same thing, which is like, I don't know if he's being prudent or not. I think he is being consistent in that Mm. he is leading with fear. He is saying, if you mess up, I'm not just going to mess with you. I'm going to mess with your children. I'm going to send your children on suicide missions. And he is making a lesson of Lucius. And so I think that ruling by fear does not work out in the long run. I think people like mothers will turn on you if you keep doing that. But as long as you are being a tyrant, it works. And this is just him being completely tyrannical, being like, I'm not going to just punish you. I'm going to punish your son. God, I'm emotional just thinking about this. Do you remember seeing those pictures of mothers in Chile, like congregating in the squares with pictures of their children who'd been disappeared, which that language is always so disturbing to me, who had been killed by the state. Yeah. And I just, I think it's so powerful what you're saying about if you go with fear, there is love that will never give in or th- or that, that will not be afraid to risk itself against you. And that times a certain number of people is just uncontrollable. It, it doesn't mean everything ends up in a cute, nice ending with a bow. No, those children don't come back. Those children don't come back. And frankly, those mothers might be gunned down. But nonetheless, there is something imprudent about Voldemort's actions because he, gosh, I, this is echoing Dumbledore, but he's going against the thing that makes us human, which is that experience of love. Like he is, he is underestimating and he's being unwise. That's why I'm using that word imprudent. He's not comprehending the drives of human connection that undo him in so many ways. It undid him when he attacked Harry as a baby, and it's going to undo him in this moment with Narcissa, which means she's going to turn and flee at the end. And and that is only one snapshot of what I can only imagine is happening many times over amongst all the people that he has bullied and terrorized and who have taken advantage of, of their status as Death Eaters, but nonetheless, ultimately their loyalty is not to Voldemort. Yeah, and he really misunderstands fear and power for control. Mm, Say more about that. Well, just because people are afraid of you and just because you have more power and you are willing to throw around that power doesn't mean that you can control their every moment, right? He's like not aware of the water cooler meetings that happen after. That's right. That are like, can you believe he did that? Oh, my God. And so he just believes in total subservience because he doesn't believe in love. And not just Narcissa. I mean, look at Bellatrix. If Bellatrix was going to be completely loyal... As soon as Narcissa walked out of the door, she would have gone to Voldemort and said, Narcissa's about to do this thing with Snape. You have to interrupt it. You should kill her. You know? Yeah. But she doesn't. No. Because it's her sister. Yep. And I'm just, I hadn't even seen that relationship as another expression of what you just said. It's the 
only human moment we see from Bellatrix. Yeah. I mean, even the fact that she calls her sissy yeah. is so interesting, right? I mean, their nicknames for each other, I think, are fascinating. Sissy, which is like, at least in the United States, it's straight up, you know, in Southern culture, what you call your sister. Mm. Um, and then Bella obviously means beautiful, mm. right? So they're calling each other like sister and beautiful. Well, in those opening pages, when we just see their physical figures, it does feel like they could be children. You yeah. know, like there's a very childlike, um, you know, just I, I can imagine that happening between two children. And who knows, this pattern may have happened before. And we do see that Bellatrix is willing to be brutal in the way that she treats the fox. Absolutely. Right? No holds barred. That thing is dead before it's moved. Exactly. I mean, and she obviously just killed Sirius and she's tortured the Longbottoms. Like, we are being constantly reminded of how willing she is to kill. And she's not only not willing to kill her sister, she is going to go and sort of protect her sister while she's doing this act of revolt against their leader. So can we talk about Bellatrix's prudence? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Her masses and masses of prudence. Because I respected Bellatrix in this scene because she's straight up about her like lack of trust in Snape. I expected, you know, before rereading it again, I was like, oh, yeah, I know they kind of confront each other. But she goes straight in and it's like, no. I don't trust you. And here's why. And here's why. And here's why. I had to applaud her directness. And there was nothing duplicitous about her in that moment. She acted with complete confidence and integrity, kind of. So maybe none of that is about prudence. Maybe it is more about integrity and directness. Because when we look, I think, at the tally of like prudence versus imprudence, there's a lot more on the other side with Bellatrix. I mean, the thing that really stood out to me is she reveals her weakness outright. She says, Voldemort trusts me with everything. I think the exact quote is, he shares everything with me. And what a way to to, to show your hand, right? What a way in which someone can come back at you and be like, well, he didn't tell you this. It's such an easy way to manipulate her as people do. So th- there's there's a recklessness about her, which probably makes her an exceptionally good fighter. But she is, I don't think prudent maybe is the word for Bellatrix. No, I mean, there, I think it's such an interesting moment of the distinctions of prudence between Snape and Bellatrix Mm. where they talk about who went to Azkaban and who didn't. Yes. Because Bellatrix is like, well, I was willing to go to Azkaban for him. And Snape is like, congrats. What were you able to do in prison? (laughs) He's ice cold. Yeah. And he's like, I was able to spy that whole time. And then she's like, oh, comfortably from your office. And he was like, yes, I thought that Voldemort had fallen, and I thought the prudent thing to do was to have a responsible job. And he actually uses prudence as a cover. That's right. Right? He's like, yeah, I did the prudent thing. And, like, you didn't help anybody by doing the imprudent thing and being in jail. So, like, who of us was right? Like, you were, quote, unquote, more loyal, but now I'm more useful. And that gets to her because she so wants to be wanted by Voldemort. And she sees that he's right. She sees that he is bringing Voldemort valuable information, bringing access to Harry Potter, all sorts of of, of things that she can't do. Well, and she wants her imprudent sacrifice to mean something, right? Yeah. Like, she spent all those years in jail and rightfully so for hate crimes, She wants them honored as like, I made this sacrifice just out of loyalty and just because I wanted the world to know that I love Voldemort. 
And how dare you say that your years, your sacrifice of not being able to teach your dream subject at a cushy private school is the same as the sacrifice that I made through my imprudence. They're arguing about which strategy was actually better. I love that. And like, to be clear, whenever I'm reading a novel, I root for imprudence in the world. Mm. I'm like, yes, kiss. Who cares what the world thinks? <laughs> right? Like, I, I'm always rooting for the imprudent thing to happen. And then I'm also the one who's, like, willing to stay at a job for a year and be like, no, 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 this is the responsible thing to do. So I don't like it when people bring chaos into my life, but I am very attracted in general to the idea of imprudence. Do you think there's a difference between the things we choose for ourselves and the things we would choose for other people? Because I think there is something about like we 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 do want to see adventure and and thrill and great romance, but also like not on Thursday because I have a dentist appointment. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I know that's true for me. Like I'm like, yes, I want to be the kind of person that just goes sailing for three months. And I'm like, but also rent. <laughs> and I think that's why we might look to people who do that with such admiration because we can only assume that they are making the same calculated list of risks as we are and still choosing to do that great adventure or still choosing to say I love you when you don't know if you're going to hear it back. And there's something about like the, the willingness to lose, the willingness to, to have your heart broken, the willingness to, of like financial ruin, right? Of breaking your legs if you're going to do a skydive, like whatever it is. I think that's why I admire Narcissa in this moment, because there is just something, God, this sounds awful talking about like a white supremacist enabling awful character, but there is a fullness to her life and a total commitment, which does kind of inspire me. Yeah. Right. She says, there's nothing I wouldn't, wouldn't do. do. And which is when Bellatrix stops fighting her. <gasps> right. She is like, Narcissa is basically saying to Bellatrix, like, if you think I will compromise my son, like, you misunderstand me. Snape is my first choice, but like, next stop, Dumbledore. Wow. Stop after that, Scrimjaw. Stop after that. Like, there is nothing I won't do to save my son. Wow. Right? I love that image. I just think that there's such focus to that. And I think having that level of focus is what brings imprudence, right? You're like, I will risk my own life. I will risk your life. I will let the world burn. I don't care as long as my son survives. So, Vanessa, there's another character that we have not really mentioned that is very much in this scene, although not visibly, and that's Peter Pettigrew. And Pettigrew is very frustrated. Like, he's kind of countering Snape's authority. He's like, you, you don't get to tell me what to do. And then Snape's like, one, two, three. And he's like, okay, you get to tell me what to do. And he's sort of cradling his arm in this very interesting yes. way because that arm is emblematic of his sacrifice to Voldemort. And it's like superhuman, right, is a gift from Voldemort. And so I feel like he's like waving it around like, let's not forget I'm the one who sacrificed myself for Voldemort to have risen again, right? It's like this symbol that he's sort of waving around. I thought I thought it was like heavy because it was made of metal. So he <laughs> had to like hold it. Maybe. <gasps> Voldemort, I'm guessing, is not a great gift giver. I mean, he's not going to wrap things. Right. So he's not going to be like, let's make sure it's titanium so it's light. <laughs> like, that's not what Voldemort no. is going to do. <laughs> but I, th I think he carries it maybe as a 
as you say, like as a token of authority and importance, but he's also having to carry its weight. I think what's interesting about Pettigrew in this moment is he chose long ago to side with Voldemort. And there are various points in the story, even so far, where you could say, you know what, he was prudent. Or actually, wow, what a stupid mistake. What has he let go of in terms of friendships and status and everything else? In this moment, I think we end up in the mess that, yes, he's safe. Yes, he's well-fed and he's not living on the streets or in Ron's pocket or wherever. But at the same time, like, is he happy? Like, is this the life that he had imagined for himself? Is he actually favored by Voldemort? No, he's a scullery maid for Snape. And so I think we see that even with hindsight, it's incomplete (laughs) because time is still moving and you don't know what the rest of the story is. Yeah. And he never is motivated by prudence. He's motivated by fear and by cowardice. Yeah. And I think that often those can look like first cousins, but they're not. Well, I think he's motivated by fear because he... He's always thinking about, you know, where am I safe? Like, who's the biggest bully who's going to stand up for me and beat all the other bullies? Because I know I can't stand up for myself. That That's always the thing that I feel with Pettigrew. Yeah, but he's willing to kill 13 muggles in order to feel safe. And then he's willing to sacrifice his own hand in order to feel safe, right? Like, he is somebody... Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I will go pretty far out of my way to feel safe. I don't think I would kill 13 people. I hope not. Or cut off my own hand. Yeah. Maybe I'd cut off my own hand. I mean, the whole thing with Pettigrew that is just, it's actually frightening to start thinking about is, okay, he's willing to go to a place where he's safe, but this is a place and a group of people and a specific individual that asks him to cut off his own hand. How much more of his own body is he willing to render and cut apart in order to feel safe in this place? Like, is there an end to that? And at this point, can there be an end to it? Because he can't go anywhere else. Well, I mean, he's also willing to live as a rat for 13 years in order to feel safe, right? It's like, at what point are you just in a prison of your own making in order to feel, quote unquote, safe? Okay, so let's take that back to your story, right? Because there came a Mm -hmm. point, maybe not in that meeting, maybe not in that team meeting or in that review, but there did come a point later that you were clear, like, not only do I need to leave, but I need to leave soon and that you started to activate looking for options elsewhere, preparing the groundwork so that you could leave. There is a point when the prison becomes too small or there is a point when the the risk of not doing something is bigger than the risk of doing something. Yeah. And I, I hope that all of us can find when that is and not let that moment slip by because it's too late for Pettigrew. He can't undo what he's done now. I think the thing that's tragic about Peter is that Peter doesn't have anything to say. There's nothing I wouldn't do for, right? And Bellatrix, at the end of the day, there's almost nothing she wouldn't do for her sister, which we see. And there's very little she wouldn't do for Voldemort except betray her sister. Wow. And Narcissa has Draco and Snape has this cause, right? Like they all have things that there's nothing that they wouldn't do for that. And at the end of the day, they will sort of sacrifice every other principle in order to live to this one principle. And Peter Pettigrew only has his own safety. And so that cage is going to get smaller and smaller until he strangles himself. And I have never seen this before, but that's why he's like Voldemort, because neither of them have anyone else that they love, if they're even capable of love. And it's their undoing for both of them. I'd never seen that parallel. Thanks, Vanessa. It's a really good book. (laughs) 
So, Casper, it is now time for us to do our sacred practice of marginalia. So you and I have swapped books. And what is so fun is that I have your book that you wrote margin notes for when we did the class together for the first time. Four years ago. Four years ago. So, Casper, something that I have noticed here that you say is you underline the Dark Lord is, I believe, mistaken. And this is what Bellatrix says. And you wrote insurrection, but correct. And I love that because Bellatrix, it is shocking that Bellatrix is willing to question Voldemort. If you think about it, she is sort of our little Eichmann character who is willing to completely do whatever it is that her master says and do the dirty work in order to get it done. And she's the implementer. But she, in this moment, is questioning him on something. She's like, I think that he's wrong about Snape. What is that nuance that she worships him as a minor deity and yet thinks he's fallible? That's really interesting. Thinks it's based on your margin. (laughs) Well, this is such an interesting moment because... Bellatrix in so many ways is Voldemort's like number one fan, right? Like is willing to do everything for him. It seems to be completely okay with every order that she's given, seems to take pleasure in the orders that she's given to hurt and to kill. And yet here she is openly questioning Voldemort's decision-making capacity. And so no one could argue, I think, having seen this scene, that she's like blindly following orders. Or frankly, that any of us is just willing to blindly follow orders. Like, I think all of us have that capacity within us to question, as she is doing here. Like, and in this case, she's willing to question in public because it's about her sister. She might have had doubts about other missions that she's been sent on, other killings that she's had to do. But she's been willing to just go along with it because they've been superseded by wanting to impress Voldemort. I find that really compelling, especially because it further implicates Bellatrix. Yeah. It derails this story of, well, she is blindly in love with this man and she will not question anything that he does because she does question him. She is completely in a rational state of mind. She's completely able to make sense of the situation and say... I will kill for him even though he's wrong sometimes. And I will only question him in the privacy of, like, Snape and my sister, but not publicly. And it shows that she is not—you know, I do believe that there are crimes of passion, but this, like, Bellatrix is a sociopath is just not true. Right. She is someone who has chosen evil. She is a woman who is making choices, and she's making choices— in sound mind and based out of hate and a sense of supremacy and a sense of values that are terrible— Right. Like the border control police who keep the water on the outside of the cages. They know exactly what they're doing. They know what they're doing and they are making choices. Yeah, that's true. Vanessa, I'm going to look at your marginalia here. And you've written, interestingly, the Dark Lord trusts him, doesn't he? Which is Narcissa saying saying that to Beltrix. And you wrote trusting what other people trust. Right, like that there's this chain of trust. And this is something that actually in my work, I notice this more and more, how it's very easy to build systems of power and systems of essentially replicating existing power structures because you trust what you know. You you trust your own experience, alumni from your school, people with the same gender or racial background, people who, you know, give a handshake and meet you in the eye in the way that you're used to doing. And certainly introductions. I do this all the time. I think, oh, you should meet so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad to help you. I believe in you. I think you're great. Now, what I don't think about 
is the 250,000 other great people who I don't know and can't make an introduction to that would lift them up in some way. And by and large, those are people with lower socioeconomic status who are, you know, mostly folks of color, like who don't live near where I live. Like there are so many little ways in which I create loops of trust that lifts a certain type of person up at the expense of other people. And those individual things are not bad. And certainly there's no ill intent behind them. But all of them together reinforces a dominant social structure, which leaves some people inside the castle and some people out. And when the wolves come, who's the first to go? Just that was so interesting to me to point to that kind of, you know, daisy chain of trust. Well, and I don't know about you, but I will say, oh, you have to meet my friend Casper Mm. after 45 seconds of knowing someone and Ah. sort of liking them and having a good gut. And then you might trust them based on my recommendation, right? Right. And without my having given it thought. I mean, that is the entirety of the Theranos scandal, I think, can be explained in large part based on what you just said, right? So Elizabeth Holmes started an impossible startup and billions and billions of dollars were invested in what ended up being a hoax, probably an unintentional hoax, but a hoax nonetheless, because one reputable person got involved and got on the board. It just needed one name. And then the next person joined because they were like, oh, Henry Kissinger is on the board? Well, if Henry Kissinger is on the board, he must have done his due diligence. That's right. And therefore, I'll get on the board. And then eventually you have this stacked board. It sounds like she tricked all these people when really they tricked themselves. That's right. By just like believing in each other's names and reputations, right? And that's exactly what's happening here. Narcissa is saying, well, Voldemort must have done his due diligence. And I do believe in referrals, right? Like the doctor who ended up curing me of endometriosis, I got because one of my best friends, Bridget, was seeing this doctor and loved him and got me into the right doctor. And I'm so grateful to her, right? And so I think that there are times where that really rewards us and hurts no one, right? Like going out of my way to say, oh, this is a babysitter I trust to another friend. Like, I think that those are good things. So we make this joke that our podcast can actually be reduced to whatever our theme is. Sometimes good, sometimes Sometimes bad. bad. But daisy chains. Sometimes good. Sometimes bad. Sometimes a beautiful hairpiece. Always a beautiful hairpiece. This week's voicemail is from Kay. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. I'm Kay from Delaware. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, but I'm actually sending you this because I felt kind of let down as a fan of color on two occasions now. I'm actually on season four, but the first occasion was during season one when you read the mirror of Arison chapter through the theme of white privilege. As many well-meaning white allies do, you took on whiteness entirely through metaphor, even as there are known to be students of color at Hogwarts and manifestations of very non-metaphorical white privilege at play. For example, the fact that at a British school there are only two named characters of South Asian heritage is something to think about, as is the fact that Barbathy and Padma's education about magic and magical history is likely being told through the lens of their ancestors' colonizers. The metaphor of white privilege as invisibility is indeed useful and powerful, but when white allies use metaphor exclusively without first turning to the experiences of actual people of color, it starts to feel like our experiences are somehow not enough to make whiteness worth mentioning. I think that can also apply to actual characters of color in the world of Harry Potter. It's why many of us felt frustrated by how quickly white allies started comparing the current administration to fictional oppressions and fictional dystopias, including the ones in Harry Potter, 
seemingly without acknowledging that for many, reality was already that dystopia. I held off on writing in because I wanted to hear how you address the Yule Ball, which to me is where race at Hogwarts becomes impossible to ignore. Harry and Ron turn to two South Asian women as a last resort in their pursuit of two lighter-skinned women and treat them as disposable. It's true that because I'm a South Asian woman myself, I found this part of the story particularly hurtful when I read it as a preteen. But I was still surprised to see their treatment at Harry and Ron's hands pretty much completely unaddressed, especially when the episode's theme was guilt. Of course, I don't speak for all fans of color. Many of us see Hogwarts as an escape from real-world race, which is valid. But because I know you are committed to allyship and have spoken up so strongly about race in the real world over and over, I wanted to share this with you and send a blessing for all the women of color who have ever felt undesired and invisible. Kay, I'm so grateful for your voicemail and so helpful to hear that reflection on the Yule Ball, especially because I'm embarrassed to say I just I hadn't read it through that lens. And I guess this is why I'm I'm grateful that you and so many people share their voicemails because it just enriches everyone's reading. And as you explained your experience of first reading it and then also hearing our reflections on it, I can deeply empathize with the both the frustration of it not being mentioned, but also the way in which it feels doubly personal when you, when you do recognize yourself in a character or in multiple characters and the way that they're then treated on the page and in discussion. So. I really appreciate you sharing this. I I know it's always like a little, you know, just can feel a little uncomfortable to give feedback like this. And please know we receive it as a gift. And I know everyone who's listening will really appreciate your your rich and insightful and generous comments. So thank you, Kay. Yeah, and I'm sorry that we put you in a position in which you feel as though you have to not only be disappointed by us, but then educate us. But we really do appreciate it. Casper, it is now time to bless someone. I want to bless Narcissa for her willingness to do anything for her child. Mm. I think it's something that all parents can relate to. It is the kind of love that, like, gives me hope in humanity. And I think that if all of our decisions were based in that, like, seven generations way of, you know, there's no sacrifice I wouldn't make for our children to have a better life than I have, I think we would live in a very different world And so I just want to bless Narcissa because I think anytime we are thinking more about the next generation than about ourselves, we are probably going to make better decisions than we would if we were thinking about ourselves. Mm. That's so related to, to the blessing I wanted to make, which is for Snape, because I think he's making exactly that sacrifice. He doesn't have children that we know of, but he has long ago made the decision to to sacrifice himself for a cause. And there are so many people, of course, who have already made that choice today as well. I think about activists around Extinction Rebellion, on climate change, around immigration justice, around racial justice. From the outside, it looks like something that is impossible. And I think when you talk to people who have made that conscious decision, it doesn't look impossible. It kind of looks necessary. And I guess this blessing is for all of us to feel a little bit more of that necessity in our own lives and and me as well. I also want to say, like, all the characters we've talked about today are, like, super not great in a lot of ways, right? And that goes without saying for us. But I I know that as we enter these books and we start to see these violent, white supremacist, terrorizing, cruel characters, it's exciting to talk about them as human beings. But I I don't want to lose sight of what they've done and what they're going to continue to do. So I guess also a blessing for all of the people who who have been impacted by them and by people like them in this world. 
I know we're all thinking of that, but I, I want to say it out loud. Yeah, I completely agree. I've been thinking a lot about about these scenes in which we end up blessing bad people. Right, right. Um, I will say that over the last three years of doing this, it has really changed me. And I think that the way that it has changed me is very much to your point about Snape. I think that I have started to see certainly Petunia-ish things within myself, right? Like I can be a person who lets in guests like two months ahead of time being like, yeah, of course you can sleep on my couch. And then I'm like, why are you here? (laughs) And like be very ungracious once they arrive. And, you know, with Petunia, particularly in the way that I feel like I should be going down to the border and should be doing everything that I can and not quite knowing what to do. I've been scared. Like, am I being Petunia Dursley here? Am I saying that I stand for something when really there's a concentration camp in Texas and I'm just sort of fine with it? Apparently, if you were to watch me from the outside, it certainly looks like I'm fine with it. And so I think that these blessings for me are such a helpful way to see my own complicity and therefore move me not to despair, but instead to action. But I know that they are an offering and therefore intent and impact are different things. And a blessing is not a condoning. Let's remind ourselves of that as well, that a blessing is partly an evocation of what is good in us all and also always an invitation to act on that goodness, never condoning of evil. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group, the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Common Room. Or, of course, please do come and support our 1,200-plus patrons on Patreon. It is how we keep the show going, and we so appreciate your support. You can also leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you very much at one of our live shows coming up. We're in New York City on September 9th, Cambridge, Mass on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 9th, Chicago on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. Next week, we'll read Chapter 3, Will and Won't, through the theme of skepticism. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Erson. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. We would like to thank Kay for this week's voicemail, Julia Argin, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Palsal. We will talk to you next week. See you, everyone. Prudence. And I'm going to be Scottish the whole time because it makes me feel prudent. <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> am I from Edinburgh or am I from Glasgow? Who knows? It's too soon to tell. Because you'll lose track. <laughs> it's true. I, I may end up in Newcastle. <laughs> I'm going to end up in Wisconsin. Um.